When I was a kid, the same thing happened every year. I had made it through the horror of the summer going and the beginning of school. And so I immediately started to look forward. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Right? When I was real little, it was the pillowcase that I would certainly fill with candy uh, at Halloween. And I did. Uh, but then when I, when I got to double digits, I looked right past Halloween, even this early. And you know what I was thinking about, right? Christmas. Right? It wasn't because I couldn't wait to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. I wanted gifts. And my dad, my dad was a great giver of gifts. And so every year I would start to imagine what would come. I'd start to anticipate. I'd start to drop hints. And in the summer uh, of 1983, I just about wore out my yellow Schwinn, you know, the ones with the high handlebars and the banana seat. And I was ready to graduate to a dirt bike. So about October that year, I started to, you know, just casually mention it at the dinner table, talk about my friend who had a mongoose. Anybody remember those? And I started, I even got to the color, chrome, blue trim. I had it all laid out so that on Christmas Eve in 83, I could hardly sleep, and all I could see when I went to bed was the images of that bicycle there in front of the tree when I got up in the morning. And when I got up in the morning, there was no bicycle there. Probably all of us know what it's like to really set our, our hearts on something and then it doesn't come. Am I right about that? It's hard. It's hard when it's a bicycle when you are uh, a kid. It's harder when it's a relationship turning this way instead of that or a career path going your way or a report from the doctor that doesn't go the way you wish when you're a grown-up. It's hard. I got up that morning uh, and sat there and, and, and tried to do my best to pretend I wasn't disappointed because my dad gave great gifts and there were plenty of gifts there. My brother and I unwrapped them and we were happy and I kept pushing it down that I was disappointed. And then after all the wrapping paper was thrown away, we leaned back on the couch and my dad put his arm around me and he said, so Chris, and he's one of the only people who calls me Chris, okay? So don't try that. <laughs> Did you get everything you wanted? And I lied, yeah, yeah, I said, yeah, it's good morning, right? I said, yeah, Dad. Had you, have you ever watched that, um, that movie, Christmas Story? Or is it, what's that, uh, Chris, what's that over there? It looks like the garage door's open a little bit. You think maybe Santa left something in there? Can, I, can, can you show the picture? This here, the guy with the red bike is my brother, and I'm the one with the blue bike. And that is Christmas morning, 1983. You cannot do wheelies like that on a, on a yellow Schwinn with a banana seat. <laughs> Let's see the next one. Look at my face as I launch off of our curb. Uh, in Proverbs, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire realized is a tree of life. And, and you all know that, don't you? Uh, that when you hope for something and, and, and you actually get it, it's like a tree of life, like... You have the kind of energy and enthusiasm in you that I had on my face as I was launching into the air. And you know that. And on the other hand, you also know that when you desire something, when you hope for it, and it's good, and it doesn't come, it makes your heart sick. Right? What about when the story doesn't end with dad having got the bicycle, and it's in the garage, but instead there's no bicycle? Because some of you lived through that as kids too, right? 
Or what if the story doesn't end with we finally made it through that rocky time and now we love each other again, but we can't even be in the same town? What if the story ends with not that you're one of the 80% and the diagnosis is positive for them, but you're actually one of the 20%. And, and you pray and you hope, but your body is still getting worse. What if, what if it's that? Uh, what, what I want to do this morning is to stand with you in the subject of hope on the one hand and hopelessness on the other. I want to be with you in it. And what I want to do is stand with you knowing that for some of you, right now this morning, you've not got the bicycle. And it doesn't look like it's going to come. And maybe it won't. So you are a person who knows hopelessness from the inside right now. And some of you are in that place. And I'm going to stand with you. And what will happen today is as we look at how faith chooses hope even in the midst of hopelessness. And that's what we're going to see. For you, it will be like some medicine that you get to take right around the end of the sermon. All right? And we're going to do that. But then for others who are, are okay and you got the bike and you're strong, for you, this message is going to be an instrument that you leave with this morning because you know that if you're not hopeless, you're not far from someone who is. Do you all know that? It's an epidemic in our country these days, hopelessness. So that means every one of us has a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker who will be right in the midst of a difficult time that's so hard we can't imagine. And so if, that's, if you're okay, but you're around people like that, you will take the message from today and I'm going to challenge you at the end to bring it to those who need it and you will be God's light for them. Okay, so whether you're hopelessness, whether you're hopeless or strong this morning, this message will be for all of you, all right? And the way we're going to learn this is through one teacher, and we're going to look at some poetry which he, which he wrote, and his name is Jeremiah, and the book that he wrote is called Lamentations. How does that sound for a fun book? Uh, the, the content of the book is about matched by the mood of the title. We're going to look at some poetry of his from this book, and we'll see, listen again, we'll see how faith chooses hope even in the midst of hopelessness. And what that means, listen, it means I'm not going to tell you there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel, and when you finally see it, then you'll be able to hope at last again. But, but hope even when the, the light at the end of the tunnel goes out. That's what we'll see in, in Jeremiah. Let me set you the context before we look at his words together. Here's the context for what he wrote. Uh, he, he was one of God's people who lived through the horrors of the fall of Jerusalem. This was the southern kingdom of God's people at the time. And he watched the, Jer the Jerusalem that he grew up in and loved fall to the enemies from the northeast in 586. And that means that generations earlier, when God had promised to Abram, who we've talked about together in here, that God would give him a, a good land and then through Abram's descendants would bless the world, that even though God was faithful to that promise, by the time that God's people finally had that land, they were not faithful to their part of that covenant. And as they were disobedient, the consequences were exile. That means that the enemies all around became stronger and actually took that land. And so Jeremiah had to watch as the temple he worshipped in was destroyed and burned. He had to live 
through having his home and the homes of his family and friends taken from them and raised to the ground. He went into custody with all of the other of God's people. And so chains were their companions as they watched their beloved land go away and had to be prisoners in a foreign land. And in that place, in that time of national hopelessness, Jeremiah had to live through what some of us know through experience, but most of us don't. And that is a time of utter hopelessness. Now, let me give you some of the images from Lamentations before we read them and see if any of these relate, either to you or someone you know. I am a man who lives in darkness without any light at all. Ever felt like that? I'm like a man who's surrounded by walls and there's no doors. It's like I'm bound in heavy chains. My body and my bones are wasting away with every passing moment. I am desolate in every way, enveloped in a blanket of grief. This is real hopelessness. I want you to look with me for a moment at some of his own words. And this is Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. He writes this, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I'd hoped for from the Lord. I mean, let's think of this for a moment. Here's a man who's trapped in darkness like he's in a prison with no doors. And the reason, it's not because he hoped for a bicycle and didn't get it, but because everything he had hoped for from the Lord is gone. Did you see that? And because of that, his glory is gone. And because of that, this is so powerfully poetic and gutting, he's actually forgotten what happiness is. Have you ever been in that place where it's so bleak you can't even look behind you and remember better days? Where you've forgotten what it's like to smile? Where there's no recollection of joy or gladness or ease? It's so bad, he says, his soul is bereft of peace, that means it's utterly emptied out. And in the vacuum of peace in the soul, you know what fills it in? Is anxiety. And when anxiety gets too much, it turns into depression, and you can't even get up. And that's what he's experiencing. He goes on in verse 19 to describe it even further. He writes, The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul thinks of it continuously and is bowed down within me. His soul dwells on this. It's always thinking about it. It goes over it again and again. And what it's going over is, is, is affliction and homelessness. Affliction in Hebrew literally means to be under attack by a force which is stronger than you are. And homelessness, you know the, the saying, home is where the heart is? Homelessness means there's nowhere for my heart to be at rest and at ease. There's nowhere where I can be settled, where I can experience the security that I know my heart was made for. Wormwood is the most bitter of all shrubs in his environment. It's the poetic image that says bitterness, gall. It's the greenish liquid that your gallbladder makes and stores to digest your food. Again, it's utterly bitter. This is a man whose circumstances are so bleak that whenever he thinks of his life, it's just bitter. It's bleak. And his soul thinks of it all the time. This is hopelessness. Now, listen. If you are here and feeling that, if that's where you are, you are in the right place. Right now, you are. There's a gift for you. And I'm serious, there is a gift for you. And I say this to you as one man who has been in days like that, to other men and women who may be there now or will be in the future, 
and and to men and women who are strong now and who will be braced by God's Holy Spirit from what happens here to bring that hope to others. And that's why I'm smiling even as I describe this hopelessness. Because what happens next in this man's poetic expression of grief is brilliant beyond description. But here's a guy who can say and mean it, I've forgotten what happiness is. Here's a guy who can say and mean it. My soul is bowed down within me. I'm wrecked. My soul is on the ground, face down in the dirt. I've got nothing. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Here's a guy who can say, everything that I'd hoped for from the Lord has been taken away. This is not a guy who says, God is so great. He says, God has taken everything that I've hoped for away. And he can still add, look at what he says in verse 21. He can still add, but... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I have hope. Not, I know things are going to get better in just a little while, but I can bring something to my mind. I have hope, even in the midst of this hopelessness. It's those four words there in the center of verse 21. I call to mind. Let's think about this for a minute. Even in this bleak moment, He can bring some thoughts to his mind which cause him to have hope. That he maintains a distinction in this bleak and dark hour between himself here and his mind there and he retains the capacity to call some things into his mind the result of which is that he has hope. Do you see it? I want you to see this truth. And this is one thing that I want you all to receive this morning, and it is this, that you always have the capacity to bring to mind those things which actually turn you from hopelessness a bit toward hope. And without thinking of it, we automatically bring things into our mind. And a lot of times, those things which we choose to bring into our minds, we often don't take responsibility for it, but those things which we choose to bring into our mind actually make it worse for us. Do you know what I mean? Okay, if you have children, all you have to do is pay attention to your kids and you'll have a fresh example of it every single day. I'm serious. I mean, when your kids freak out because things aren't going their way, watch what they are calling to mind and you will see the patterns of mind that make our situations worse. Let me give you a picture of it, okay? It's summer 2014. It's in August It's a Saturday, okay? My children, Nate and Lily, are four and six years old. Saturday is the best day for our family. It's family day. And that means you stay up too late on Friday night. You sleep in on Saturday morning. You stay in your pajamas until after lunch, okay? Before lunch, you've had a big sugary breakfast, which makes you take a nap at around 10 while the kids are watching cartoons. You wake up from the nap. You eat like a quarter pound of bacon if it's a good morning. That's me, okay? You, you, you just laze around. Then you get up and you go take a hike. You walk around in the woods with the kids. You throw rocks. You break sticks. You just don't think about anything like work. You end up at the red store and you have for lunch sauerkraut, corned beef, rye, You know what I'm talking about? Melted provolone. Anybody with me? Russian dressing? A Reuben, right? It stains your shirt. You go back home, you take another nap. You (laughs) You wake up, and it's like, and this actually happened on this Saturday in August of 2014. Your six year old son says, Dad, this is the best day of my entire life. And you think, mine too. And then, then your wife says, Hey, Christian, you know, I think there's a music festival down at the park which is just about three blocks from our house. We went there last year. Why don't we make this perfect day even better and walk there? Awesome. Let's do it. We get the kids together. We start walking. And on the way, the kids remember that there's candy there. 
And that's one, that, that for them is the best possible thing. There's toys there. There's rides there. We, we arrive at the fair. We get there, and there's, you know, a couple thousand folks. We make our way through the crowds. There's tents and vendors. There's a cover band playing some Grateful Dead tune. It's awesome. We get around, and then the kids remember the sugary treat that is the best of all sugary treats. Do you know what I'm talking about? Cotton candy. I saw someone mouth it. They say, can we have cotton candy? Mom, they ask her. She's a little bit unsure. Dad says, no, you can definitely have it. Translation, I want cotton candy for myself. We make our way all the way around a slow loop. I'm looking for cotton candy, but I'm not finding it. We get all the way around the circle. No cotton candy this year. This is a devastating blow for a four and a six-year-old and for me, but I don't let on. And the kids, I see the tears start to well up. And if you're a parent, you know what I do, right? I go into tear suppression mode. Strategy number one, you're a big boy now, doesn't work. Strategy number two, appeal to mercy. Hey, when you cry like that, it hurts mom's ears really bad. I skip right over that and go right to strategy number three. It works in the, in the short run, but it's bad for the long run. You promise some reward if you only won't keep crying. And so I go right to, we'll get you a toy, right? Grab the hands. We head over to the table that looks like it has toys on it. And as we near this long, broad table, behind which there's a man with a tie-dyed shirt and long hair, we realize these are not toys for children. <laughs> Right, a glass pipe shaped like a mushroom. There's a hat with like a seven-leaf green, you know, leaves on it. There's a little bear with a tie-dye shirt and bloodshot eyes. We go on <laughs> to the next. The next strategy is rides, rides, rides. We get close to the ride area. There's the ticket booth. There's only two rides, all right? One of them is an inflatable slide that's about 65% full. It looks like a used whoopee cushion. The other one is a tiny little bounce castle that's smaller than the one that we have in our backyard. $12 for four minutes. It's, the whole area smells like tinkle. No, I, I'm like, we're, no, we're getting out of here. The kids start to freak out and melt down. We went from the best day to the worst day in like under 12 minutes. And we're leaving. That's our strategy now, escape. We start walking up the hill. As the kids are freaking out, of course, everyone's looking at us. A kind-faced man at the top of the hill comes toward us. He's got two balloons in his hands. <sighs> Do you feel better already? <laughs> he puts one in each kid's hands. They stop screaming. They're just weeping a teeny bit. We wipe the, the tears. We've made it, all right? We get up to the sidewalk. We cross. You know how hard it is when you don't get what you want, right? I'm not talking about rides and candy. We cross the street and we're feeling free. Nate's balloon brushes against the branches of a tree. It pops, startles lilies. She lets go of hers. It goes up into the atmosphere. <laughs> and they fall down on this, they fall down and they're screaming. Nate says, This is the worst day of my life. And Lily adds, I will never go to a festival again as long as I live. Look, look at these three, look at these three statements right here. Look at them. This is what our mind does when we have a hard time, which we all do. We say these three things. We say, everything is bad. We say that. And we add to that, it used to be better. That's what happens as soon as we start looking at ourselves where we are. It used to be so much better. And then we look into the future and we say, it, life will only get worse. I mean, let's, let's dwell on each one of these three because children do this and adults do it too. We get stuck in something that's really bad. There's no cotton candy and the rides are too expensive for mom and dad right now and there's no toys and, and we look at that one problem which is bad and we don't just say it's bad now, we say everything is bad. 
And we, we globalize our entire existence gets wrapped up in the one problem that we have, and we make the mistake of saying, when something's really bad, everything's bad. Now, I want to say something challenging to you. Maybe the relationship didn't work out. And maybe the doctor's prognosis is terrible, and it is. And maybe you are alone this morning instead of sitting next to someone who you wish were with you. And I don't know how hard that is myself. I don't. But I also know, here's where I'm going to challenge you, and forgive me if it's too much, but I also know that none of those things are everything. You see that? They are something really bad, but they're not everything. And when we make that mistake of saying everything, the next thing that happens, and it does happen, is we start remembering what it used to be like and then we idealize that past. We make it way better than it was and we bring it into the future and it only makes us feel worse thinking about it. You know, Nathan Lilly remembered the cotton candy as especially good last year and I don't think it was that good. And they remember the toys as being spectacular and they were garbage. And they remember the rides and listen, even if it was great, it's so easy to look into the past and make it way better than it was. And your mind will trick you into doing that. It will. So that the bleak present becomes even worse. And then this is the hardest one. When you do those two, when you say everything, oh, it used to be. And then you start looking down the road. You're, you're going to tell yourself life is only going to get worse. I never, I never will go to a festival again as long as I live. Our four-year-old daughter said that. She said, we already learn. We're four years old and we're already doing that. And when you do that, when your mind falls into these patterns, what will happen is that your terrible circumstances, which are bad, will only get worse. And all of the hope will be drained from your soul. And then, and this is what the enemy wants to do to you, then you will, you personally will experience no joy and no pleasure, no verve or vitality in life. And the truth about you is that God made you to be alive and deeply glad. And you won't experience that. And here's the second thing. You were meant to do good in the world. And I've talked about this week after week up here. You won't be good for anything. And I'm, this is astounding I'm not going to tell you this morning that once things turn around, then you'll be able to have joy again and hope again, and then you'll be able to good, be good in the world. I'm going to tell you this morning that even if, even if it's true that everything is bad, let's say I don't know your situation and everything is bad, and even if it's true that everything used to be better, let's say that were true also, and, and let's add to it that life is going to get worse for you, even if that is true, you still can have hope right now in such a way that you yourself have joy in the midst of misery and are God's beautiful instrument even as you face and carry grief with dignity and hope. And the reason I can say that is this man, Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Lamentations was a man who, if he was here, would say, well done, preacher, but the truth is everything is bad and life used to be so much better and it's only going to get worse because that's what happened in the exile. But even so... It was true that he could call to his mind those things which would bring hope, and you also are invited to do the same this morning. Let's look at his, hope, hope, his mind's strategy and hopelessness in such a way that brings hope. Look at how he continues after telling us in verse 21 that his strategy and hopelessness is to call something to mind. Verse 22, this is what he calls to mind which brings hope. Look at it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. All three of them are about God. Not one of them is about the future and what might happen to him. Not one of them is about things changing in the way that he wishes they would change. All three of them are deep and true convictions about who the God is who created the entire world and holds everything in his hands. And if you would just picture it for a moment, if you would imagine a man in the worst possible situation, and there in that bleak darkness, he brings to mind these three thoughts. He thinks about God's love for him. He thinks about God's mercy, which is new like the sunrise every morning. He brings to mind his faithfulness that God has for him, and all three of them bring hope into the misery. You are all free to do it. Dwell on these with me for a moment. First, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That means God loves me now and he will love me tomorrow. Steadfast means it's not subject to fickle change based on the temperature or the mood. It's always the same. Never ceases means I don't know anything about what will happen from, from this day forward. I don't. And you know we don't. Think of that. We don't know what's going to happen even later this afternoon. That 10 years from now, all of my friends who, who I take hope in right now might be gone. They all might betray me. All of the relationships that bring me strength, they could all disappear. I could be utterly alone. My health, which is good now, could be gone then. Everything in the whole world could change. The mountains could shake and fall into the heart of the seas. But God will love me still 10 years from now. It will never cease. He calls that to mind. What if, and you might say this, what if I'm so rotten now that I can believe in God's love for other people but not for myself? Do you know that there are people who come to church every single week and they bring that thought with them? I'm sure of it because people have opened up to me about that one after sermons where I talk about God's love. Maybe it's for other people, but it can't be for me. And you can't say it's for me, preacher, because you don't know what I've done. I, you're right, I don't know, and I don't want to know. <laughs> but God knows. God knows every detail of your betrayal, your underhandedness, the way you're fake to others and yourself and to him. He knows it all. He knows how awful and treacherous Israel was, even though he loved them, the way they turned over and over again. And there are so many magnificent images in the scripture about how wicked they were, but God's love for them was like the love of a father who teaches his son to walk and watches his son fall and runs to pick him up. That is actually from the book of Hosea. God's love for them is like a husband who is spurned by the unfaithfulness of his wife and he chases after her, even if it humiliates him because of how much he loves her and his mercy, that's also from the Bible, his love for them is like the love of a mother holding a nursing infant to her breast and then bringing that child up to her cheek. That's also from the Bible. His mercies are new every morning, which means if tonight you do the most treacherous thing that you'd never think you could have done, tomorrow morning his mercy will be new just like the sunrise will be new. And in his grief and in his misery, Jeremiah calls that to mind. As the sun comes up, he thinks, yes, that's God's mercy for me yet again. Every morning. <laughs> what if, what if there's an end to those mornings? And let's be really honest. Let's bring it into the context of this preaching that I've been doing with you since I've been here with you, right? This series is about faith, right? And again and again, we've talked about what faith looks like. What if I don't have any faith? That's a fair question too. His mercy 
okay, his love, but what if I don't have faith? What if when you talk about Abram, who hears God's call, and, and he knows what the right next step is, and faith is stepping out, what if, unlike Abram, I know exactly what God wants for me, but I never take the step, what then? Right? Or what if Joseph, who you showed me, keeps going forward even though people do wicked things to him? What if when people do wicked things to me, I go forward, but I resent them every day for it, and I've got a, a wealth of resentment in me? What if I don't have his faith? Right? Or what if, like Moses, I know exactly what God has asked me to do, but instead of pushing through the excuses like Moses did in faith, what if I keep making the excuses and every week I sit here, I feel more guilty because I don't have the faith to finally step out? Or what if, like Caleb, I know the giants are there, I believe in God's power, but I just can't keep moving forward? What if, like the widow, which I spoke about last week, I know exactly what God's asked me to give, and I have plenty of it, but I won't give it because I don't have any faith? What then? Did you see what the third thing is that he called to mind? Great is whose faithfulness? Your faithfulness. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, these are the words of, of the Apostle Paul who I've spoken about each time that I gather with you. And that's also true. And that also is called to mind. In this man's misery, which is easily as bad as any of ours, he does not get hope when he tells himself everything will soon be better or somebody else has it worse or I'm supposed to feel good so let me try to pretend I do. None of that. He has forgotten what happiness is. He's like a man imprisoned. He hasn't got anything that he hoped for from God but he still has hope because he says in that moment, God loves me now and he always will and he trusts it and he believes it. And listen to me, I'm saying this to those of you who I've known for 15 years and to those of you who I've met just in this last month and those of you who are still strangers to me, God's love is for you now. And it's great and it's, it's never, it will never cease. I can say that and you're free to call that to your heart. And those of you who are wicked beyond what I could imagine, the truth for you is that his mercy is even more strong, unimaginably so. A sin abounds, but his mercy abounds even more. I've read that. And then lastly, that you may be faithless, but his faithfulness is for you. It's higher than the heavens and deeper than the sea. And here now, here I want to get as practical as I can. And I said at the start that if you're here this morning and you're struggling with hopelessness, there would be some medicine for you to take. And I've already spoken about it, but I want to make it as clear as I can. And if, if you're here this morning and you're okay, and you've got friends who are not, uh, the mission of Renaissance Church, as it should be for every church, is for those of us who are built up and strengthened to go out and be God's strength to others. So we're going to talk about both of those briefly. All right, if you're the one who is either strong or weak, whoever you are, you're going to take this card out that you got. We're going to start there. And, and I'm going to let you save the passage on this side for another time. You're going to read that on your own. But for now, you're going to look at that one side and see that it says, faith chooses hope in hopelessness. And so where, wherever you are, you are going to remember as an adult, and even young people can remember this, that you still have the freedom to choose when you're in difficult places what you're going to do with your mind. You're going to remember that you have the freedom to choose hope. And then if you're, if you're that person who's suffering in this moment, I'm just going to ask you to remember these three things and commit them to memory and then call them to mind in your hopelessness. And when I say call them to mind, I mean repeat them to yourself. 
And if you have to, if you can do it in your mind, do it in your mind. If you have to do it out loud, you know, do it alone because people will look at you weird, okay? But you're going to say, God loves me now and he always will. That's the first thing you're going to say. God loves me now and he always will. The second thing you're going to say is, his mercy is new for me every day. And then the third thing you're going to say is, his faithfulness is great. And you're going to commit those to mind. And the next time you get trapped and your mind starts saying, everything is bad. It used to be so much better. It's only going to get worse. You're going to add to those three. He loves me now and he always will. His mercy is new for me every, every morning. And his faithfulness is great. And have a fight in your mind with those three. Do it. Okay, that's for you. Uh, and I want to add this. Don't try to do it alone. Please bring someone else into it. That's for you if you're hopeless. So bring someone in here into it. If you're strong and you're confident and you're courageous and you're right now in a good place, find someone who's hopeless. Be proactive. Uh, invite them out or if they're in your home, carve out some time where it's just the two of you and sit down and say, hey, I just want to listen to you. Would you tell me about what you're going through, okay? And then just shut your mouth and open your ears. And while they're talking, you're going to do two things. Listen to their words and, and trust me, this is what you're, going to, what you're called to do. As they're talking, you believe for them that those three things. Say, they don't believe it, but say it in your own mind. God loves them now and he always will. Say it. His mercy is for them new every morning. His faithfulness faithfulness for them is great while they're talking and then you pray and say God if you want me to help them by saying any one of these give me the right words to say but if the best way I can help is to just be quiet help me see that too and then let the spirit guide you and maybe you say something with your words and maybe you don't but your presence with them as you believe that for them will be God's presence with them and you'll help okay now one last thing and then I'm done how can any one of us really know that God's love is for us and that his mercy is really for us new every morning and that his faithfulness is great? I'm very excited to tell you this. I really am. I've been thinking about it since the first time I preached on faith here with you. And I'm going to really, really unfold this next week. So next week is when we get to see Jesus himself. But, but some of you who are here, do you remember the image I started with? It was a photograph of my daughter stuck in a tree that was 60 feet up. Remember that? I, I get sweaty thinking about it. But here's how you know with confidence that God's love is for you. You ready? I'm going to tell you. First and foremost, you're, you're finally willing to admit that you are that four-year-old child stuck up in the top of a tree that's too high for you to get down from. Th that's the first step. You just have to admit it. This is where the scriptures say that we're sinners. We're lost. Without God, we're totally doomed and dead. That means I'm trapped in a tree. I cannot get down. I've tried every strategy I, I know how, and I can't get down. That's number one. And then the second thing that you do is to recognize that God himself, because of his great love, which has no end, decided to become a living person in Jesus Christ, and that means he's climbed all the way up to that top of that treacherous tree to take you in his arms and rescue you from a place from which you cannot rescue yourself. And the second thing you do is you just say, I'm really glad for that. Thank God he's here. That's it. To just be glad for that. And by the way, if you've already known that he's rescued you, you're free to let him do it again. And just, here's the third thing. You just let go of the branches and let yourself fall into his arms. And that means allowing Jesus Christ to be the one who rescues you 
which is freedom from trying to rescue yourself on the one hand, and, and on the other hand, letting Jesus Christ be in your life who he is. Whether you let him be or not, he is the Lord. And letting him be the Lord means letting him carry you down this tree to safety, and that means you, you cease trying to be your own Lord and let him guide you at every step of the way. And when he rescues you and delivers you, that is a moment when you have definitively stepped out in faith. That's what faith is, entrusting yourself into the hands of another who's stronger. And then let me close with this, and then I'm going to add my prayer to this. Then you are free to choose hope and hopelessness. You're really free to do it. And, and then whether you get the bicycle or not, you will be a bright light no matter what. You will. The walls around you will have a door in them. The chains will have been broken and utterly taken away. There's no more prison. You are completely free to move forward in faith, no matter how bleak it is, no matter how dark it is, and you will be in the world around you the light and presence of the hope of our Lord and Savior for others who are trapped in darkness. That's good. W would you pray with me? God, for the gift of time together like this around your word and for the gift of hope in hopelessness, for the freedom to see that we always have the freedom to choose, we give you great thanks and praise. God, I ask that for those who are in the midst of hopelessness now, that this word would be for them the freedom that they need to receive and that they would be delivered, even if only a little bit this morning, from hopelessness as they are free to call to mind your great love and your mercy and your faithfulness. God, for the rest of us who are not in the midst of hopelessness but are yet strong, I pray that our time together would have put us in the position to bring your love and hope to others who need it. God, would you make that true of Renaissance as a church altogether? Would we become a church that brings your light out into the world around us in such a way that others come to you and are free? And then lastly, I ask very simply that for all of us who in our own ways are trapped in that tall tree, that we would finally be free to allow you to come and rescue us. I pray for that now. I pray for that in the days ahead especially. And I ask for that in the name of Jesus your Son and our Savior and our friend. In his name we pray, amen.